Section 32 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 41. Louis XIII, Cardinal Richelieu and Foreign Affairs, Part 3. It was ten a.m., and the fog had just lifted. Six batteries of cannon and two large ditches defended the imperialists. The artillery from the ramparts of Lutzen played upon the king's army. The balls came whizzing about him. Bernard of Saxe-Weimar was the first to attack, pushing forward on Lutzen, which was soon taken. Gustavus Adolphus marched on to the enemy's entrenchments. For an instant the Swedish infantry seemed to waver. The king seized a pike and flung himself amidst the ranks. Quote, after crossing so many rivers, scaling so many walls, and storming so many places, if you have not courage enough to defend yourselves, at least turn your heads to see me die, he shouted to the soldiers. They rallied. The king remounted his horse, bearing along with him a regiment of Smallandais cavalry. Quote, you will behave like good fellows, all of you, he said to them, as he dashed over the two ditches, carrying, as he went, two batteries of the enemy's cannon. Quote, he took off his hat and rendered thanks to God for the victory he was giving him. Two regiments of imperial cuirassiers rode up to meet him. The king charged them at the head of his Swedes. He was in the thickest of the fight. His horse received a ball through the neck. Gustavus had his arm broken. The bone came through the sleeve of his coat. He wanted to have it attended to, and begged the Duke of Saxe-Altenburg to assist him in leaving the battlefield. At that very moment, Falkenberg, lieutenant-colonel in the imperial army, galloped his horse on to the king, and shot him point-blank in the back with a pistol. The king fell from his horse, and Falkenberg took to flight, pursued by one of the king's squires, who killed him. Gustavus Adolphus was left alone with a German page who tried to raise him. The king could no longer speak. Three Austrian cuirassiers surrounded him, asking the page the name of the wounded man. The youngster would not say, and fell, riddled with wounds, on his master's body. The Austrians sent one more pistol-shot into the dying man's temple, and stripped him of his clothes, leaving him only his shirt. The melee recommenced, and successive charges of cavalry passed over the hero's corpse. There were counted nine open wounds and thirteen scars on his body when it was recovered towards the evening. One of the king's officers, who had been unable to quit the fight in time to succor him, went and announced his fall to Duke Bernard of Saxe-Weimar. To him a retreat was suggested, but, quote, we mustn't think of that, said he, but of death or victory. End quote. A lieutenant-colonel of a cavalry regiment made some difficulty about resuming the attack. The duke passed his sword through his body, and putting himself at the head of the troops, led them back upon the enemy's entrenchments, which he carried and lost three times. At last he succeeded in turning the cannon upon the enemy, and that gave the turn to the victory, which nevertheless was disputed till night. End quote. Quote, it was one of the most terrible ever heard of, says Cardinal Richelieu. Six thousand dead or dying were left on the field of battle, where Duke Bernard encamped till morning. When day came, he led the troops off to Weisenfeld. The army knew nothing yet of the king's death. The Duke of Saxe-Weimar had the body brought to the front. Quote, I will no longer conceal from you, he said, the misfortune that has befallen us. In the name of the glory that you have won in following this great prince, help me to exact vengeance for it, and to let all the world see that he commanded soldiers who rendered him invincible, and even after his death, the terror of his enemies. A shout arose from the host, quote, We will follow you whither you will, even to the end of the earth. End quote. 
quote, those who look for spots on the sun and find something reprehensible even in virtue itself blame this king says cardinal richelieu for having died like a trooper but they do not reflect that all conqueror princes are obliged to do not only the duty of captain but of simple soldier and to be the first in peril in order to lead thereto the soldier who would not run the risk without them it was the case with caesar and with alexander and the swede died so much the more gloriously than either the one or the other in that it is more becoming the condition of a great captain and a conqueror to die sword in hand making a tomb for his body of his enemies on the field of battle than to be hated of his own and poniarded by the hands of his nearest and dearest or to die of poison or of drowning in a wine-butt just like napoleon in egypt and italy gustavus adolphus had performed the prelude by numerous wars against his neighbours to the grand enterprise which was to render his name illustrious vanquished in his struggle with denmark in sixteen thirteen he had carried war into muscovy conquered towns and provinces and as early as sixteen seventeen he had effected the removal of the russians from the shores of the baltic the poles made a pretence of setting their own king sigismund upon the throne of sweden and for eighteen years gustavus adolphus had bravely defended his rights and protected and extended his kingdom up to the truce of altenmarket concluded in sixteen twenty nine through the intervention of richelieu who had need of the young king of sweden in order to oppose the emperor ferdinand and the dangerous power of the house of austria summoned to germany by the protestant princes who were being oppressed and despoiled and assured of assistance and subsidies from the king of france gustavus adolphus had no doubt ideas of a glorious destiny which have been flippantly taxed with egotistical ambition perhaps in the noble joy of victory when he quote, was marching on without fighting end quote, seeing provinces submit one after another without his being hardly at the pains to draw his sword might he have sometimes dreamed of a protestant empire and the imperial crown upon his head but assuredly such was not the aim of his enterprise and of his life quote, i must in the end make a sacrifice of myself he had said on bidding farewell to the estates of sweden and it was to the cause of protestantism in europe that he made this sacrifice sincerely religious in heart gustavus adolphus was not ignorant that his principal political strength was in the hands of the protestant princes and he put at their service the incomparable splendour of his military genius in two years the power of the house of austria a work of so many efforts in so many years was shaken to its very foundations the evangelical union of protestant princes was reforming in germany and treating as equal with equal with the emperor ferdinand was trembling in vienna and the spaniards uneasy even in italy were collecting their forces to make head against the irresistible conqueror when the battlefield of lutzen saw the fall at thirty years of age of the quote, hero of the north the bulwark of protestantism end quote, as he was called by his contemporaries astounded at his greatness god sometimes thus cuts off his noblest champions in order to make men see that he is master and he alone accomplishes his great designs but to them whom he deigns to thus employ he accords the glory of leaving their imprint upon the times they have gone through and the events to which they have contributed two years of victory in germany at the head of protestantism suffice to make the name of gustavus adolphus illustrious for ever richelieu had continued the work of henry the fourth and chancellor oxenstiern did not leave to perish that of his master and friend scarcely was gustavus adolphus dead when oxenstiern convoked at erfurt the deputies from the protestant towns and made them swear the maintenance of the union he afterwards summoned to heilbronn all the protestant princes the four circles of upper germany franconia swabia 
the Palatinate and the Upper Rhine, and the Elector of Brandenburg alone sent their representatives, but Richelieu had delegated M. de Feuquieres, who quietly brought his weight to bear on the decision of the Assembly, and got Oxenstiern appointed to direct the Protestant party. The Elector of Saxony, who laid claim to this honour, was already leaning towards the treason which he was to consummate in the following year. France at the same time renewed her treaty with Sweden and Holland. The great general of the armies of the empire, Wallenstein, displeased with his master, was making secret advances to the cardinal and to Oxenstiern. Wherever he did not appear in person, the imperial armies were beaten. The emperor was just having his eyes opened, when Wallenstein, summoning around him at Pilsen, his generals and his lieutenants, made them take an oath of confederacy for the defence of his person and of the army, and begging Bernard of Saxe-Weimar and the Saxon generals to join him in Bohemia, he wrote to Feuquier to accept the king's secret offers. Amongst the generals assembled at Pilsen there happened to be Max Piccolomini, in whom Wallenstein had great confidence. He at once revealed to the emperor his generalissimo's guilty intrigues. Wallenstein fell, assassinated by three of his officers, on the 15th of February, 1634 and the young king of Hungary, the emperor's eldest son, took the command-in-chief of the army under the direction of the veteran generals of the empire. On the 6th of September, by one of those reversals which disconcert all human foresight, Bernard of Saxe-Weimar and the Swedish marshal Horn, coming up to the aid of Nordlingen, which was being besieged by the Austrian army, were completely beaten in front of that place, and their army retired in disorder, leaving Swabia to the conqueror. Protestant Germany was in consternation, all eyes were turned towards France. Cardinal Richelieu was ready. The frequent treasons of Duke Charles of Lorraine had recently furnished him with an opportunity, whilst directing the king's arms against him, of taking possession, partly by negotiation, and partly by force, first of the town of Nancy, and then of the Duchy of Bar. The duke had abdicated in favour of the cardinal, his brother, who, renouncing his ecclesiastical dignity, espoused his cousin, Princess Claude of Lorraine, and took refuge with her at Florence, whilst Charles led into Germany, to the emperor, all the forces he had remaining. The king's armies were coming to provisionally take possession of all the places in Lothringen, where the Swedes, beaten in front of Nordlingen, being obliged to abandon the left bank of the Upper Rhine, placed in the hands of the French the town of Philipsburg, which they had but lately taken from the Spaniards. The Rhinegrave Otto, who was commanding in Elsass for the Confederates, in the same way effected his retreat, delivering over to Marshal La Force Colmar, Schleestadt, and many small places. The Bishop of Basel and the free city of Mulhausen likewise claimed French protection. On the 1st of November, the ambassadors of Sweden and of the Protestant League signed at Paris a treaty of alliance, soon afterwards ratified by the Diet at Worms, and the French army, entering Germany under Marshals La Force and Brez, caused the siege of Heidelberg to be raised on the 23rd of December. Richelieu was in treaty at the same time with the United Provinces for the invasion of the Catholic Low Countries. It was in the name of their ancient liberties that the cardinal, in alliance with the heretics of Holland, summoned the ancient Flanders to revolt against Spain. If they refused to listen to this appeal, the confederates were under mutual promises to divide their conquest between them. France confined herself to stipulating for the maintenance of the Catholic religion in the territory that devolved to Holland. The army destined for this enterprise was already in preparation, and the king was setting out to visit it, when in April 1635 he was informed of Chancellor Oxenstiern's arrival. Louis XIII awaited him at Compiègne. The Chancellor was accompanied by a numerous following, worthy of the man who held the command of a sovereign over the princes of the Protestant League. 
he had at his side the famous Hugo Grotius, but lately exiled from his country on account of religious disputes, and now accredited as ambassador to the King of France from the little queen Christina of Sweden. It was Grotius who acted as interpreter between the king and the Chancellor of Sweden. A rare and grand spectacle was this interview between, on the one side, the Swede and the Hollander, both of them great political philosophers in theory or practice, and on the other, the all-powerful minister of the King of France, in presence of that king himself. When Oxenstiern and Richelieu conferred alone together, the two ministers had recourse to Latin, that common tongue of the cultivated minds of their time, and nobody was present at their conversation. Oxenstiern soon departed for Holland, laden with attentions and presents. He carried away with him a new treaty of alliance between Sweden and France, and the assurance that the king was about to declare war against Spain. And it broke out, accordingly, on the 19th of May, 1635. The violation of the electorate of Treves by the Cardinal Infante and the carrying off of the elector archbishop served as pretext, and Louis Thirteenth declared himself protector of a feeble prince who had placed in his hands the custody of several places. Alençon, herald at arms of France, appeared at Brussels, proclamation of war in hand, and not being able to obtain an interview with the Cardinal Infante, he hurled it at the feet of the Belgian herald at arms commissioned to receive him, and he affixed a copy of it to a post he set up in the ground in the last Flemish village near the frontier. On the 6th of June, a proclamation of the kings summoned the Spanish Low Countries to revolt. A victory had already been gained in Luxembourg, close to the little town of Avain, over Prince Thomas of Savoy, the Duke Regnant's brother, who was embroiled with him, and whom Spain had just taken into her service. The campaign of 1635 appeared to be commencing under happy auspices. These hopes were deceived. The Low Countries did not respond to the summons of the King and of his confederates. There was no rising anywhere against the Spanish yoke. Traditional jealousy of the heretics of Holland prevented the Flanders from declaring for France. It was necessary to undertake a conquest instead of fomenting an insurrection. The Prince of Orange was advancing slowly into Germany. The Elector of Saxony had treated with the Emperor, and several towns were accepting the peace concluded between them at Prague. Bernard of Saxe-Weimar, supported by Cardinal Vallette at the head of French troops, had been forced to fall back to Metz in order to protect Lothringen and Alsace. In order to attach this great general to himself forever, the king had just ceded to Duke Bernard the land gravat of Elsass, hereditary possession as it was of the house of Austria. The Prince of Condé was attacking Franche-Comté. The siege of Dole was dragging its slow length along when the emperor's most celebrated lieutenants, John van Veert and Piccolomini, who had formed a junction in Belgium, all at once rallied the troops of Prince Thomas and advancing rapidly towards Picardy, invaded French soil at the commencement of July, 1636. La Capelle and Le Catelet were taken by assault, and the imperialists laid siege to Corby, a little town on the Somme four leagues from Amiens. Great was the terror at Paris, and besides the terror, the rage. The cardinal was accused of having brought ruin upon France. For a moment the excitement against him was so violent that his friends were disquieted about it. He alone was unmoved. The king quitted Saint-Germain and returned to Paris, whilst Richelieu, alone, without escort, and with his horses at a walk, had himself driven to the Hôtel de Ville right through the mob in their fury. Quote, 
then was seen says fontenay mareuil what can be done by a great heart or vertu and how it is revered even of the basest souls for the streets were so full of folks that there was hardly room to pass and all so excited that they spoke of nothing but killing him as soon as they saw him approaching they all held their peace or prayed god to give him good speed that he might be able to remedy the evil which was apprehended on the 15th of August, Corbie surrendered to the Spaniards, who crossed the Somme, wasting the country behind them. But already alarm had given place to ardent desire for vengeance. The cardinal had thought of everything and provided for everything. The bodies corporate, from the Parliament to the trade syndicates, had offered the king considerable sums. All the gentlemen and soldiers unemployed had been put on the active list of the army and the burgesses of paris mounting in throngs the steps of the hotel de ville went and shook hands with the veteran marshal la force saying quote, marshal we want to make war with you they were ordered to form the nucleus of the reserve army which was to protect paris the duke of orleans took the command of the army assembled at compiegne at the head of which the count of soissons already was the two princes advanced slowly they halted two days to recover the little fortress of rose the imperialists fell back they retired into artois they were not followed and the french army encamped before corbie winter was approaching nobody dared to attack the town the cardinal had no confidence in either the duke of orleans or the count of soissons he went to amiens whilst the king established his headquarters at the castle of desmoins closer to corbie richelieu determined to attack the town by assault the trenches were opened on the fifth of november on the tenth the garrison parleyed on the fourteenth the place was surrendered quote, i am very pleased to send you word that we have recovered corbie wrote voiture to one of his friends very hostile to the cardinal oeuvre de voiture page one seventy five the news will astonish you no doubt as well as all europe nevertheless we are masters of it reflect i beg you what has been the end of this expedition which has made so much noise spain and germany had made for the purpose their supremest efforts the emperor had sent his best captains and his best cavalry the army of flanders had given its best troops out of that is formed an army of twenty-five thousand horse fifteen thousand foot and forty cannon this cloud big with thunder and lightning comes bursting over picardy which it finds unsheltered our arms being occupied elsewhere they take first of all la capelle and le catelet they attack and in nine days take corbie and so they are masters of the river. They cross it, and they lay waste all that lies between the Somme and the Oise. And so long as there is no resistance, they valiantly hold the country, they slay our peasants and burn our villages. But at the first rumour that reaches them to the effect that Monsieur is advancing with an army, and that the king is following close behind him, they entrench themselves behind Corbie, and when they learn that there is no halting, and that the march against them is going on merrily, our conquerors abandon their entrenchments and these determined gentry who were to pierce france even to the pyrenees who threatened to pillage paris and recover there even in notre dame the flags of the battle of avin permit us to effect the circumvallation of a place which is of so much importance to them give us leisure to construct forts and after that let us attack and take it by assault before their very eyes such is the end of the bravados of piccolomini who sent us word by his trumpeters to say at one time that he wished we had some powder and at another that we had some cavalry coming and when we had both one and the other he took very good care to wait for us in such sort sir that except la capelle and le catelet which are of no consideration all the flash made by this grand and victorious army has been the capture of corbie only to give it up again and replace it in the king's hands together with a counterscarp three bastions and three demi-lunes which it did not possess 
If they had taken ten more of our places with similar success, our frontier would be in all the better condition for it, and they would have fortified it better than those who hitherto have had the charge of it. Was it not said that we should expend before this place many millions of gold and many millions of men, with a chance of taking it, perhaps, in three years? Yet, when the resolution was taken to attack it by assault, the month of November being well advanced, there was not a soul but cried out. The best-intentioned avowed that it showed blindness, and the rest said that we must be afraid, lest our soldiers should not die soon enough of misery and hunger, and must wish to drown them in their own trenches. As for me, though I knew the inconveniences which necessarily attend sieges undertaken at this season, I suspended my judgment, for, sooth to say, we have often seen the cardinal out in matters that he has had done by others, but we have never yet seen him fail in enterprises that he has been pleased to carry out in person, and that he has supported by his presence. I believed, then, that he would surmount all difficulties, and that he who had taken La Rochelle in spite of Océan would certainly take Corby, too, in spite of winter's rains. You will tell me that it is luck which has made him take fortresses without ever having conducted a siege before, which has made him, without any experience, command armies successfully, which has always led him, as it were, by the hand, and preserved him amidst precipices into which he had thrown himself, and which in fact has often made him appear bold, wise, and far-sighted. Let us look at him, then, in misfortune, and see if he had less boldness, wisdom, and far-sightedness. Affairs were not going over well in Italy, and we had met with scarcely more success before Dole. When it was known that the enemy had entered Picardy, that all is aflame to the very banks of the Oise, everybody takes fright, and the chief city of the realm is in consternation. On top of that comes advices from Burgundy that the siege of Dole is raised, and from Saint-Ange that there are fifteen thousand peasants revolted, and that there is fear lest Poitou and Guienne may follow this example bad news comes thickly, the sky is overcast on all sides, the tempest beats upon us in all directions, and from no quarter whatever does a single ray of good fortune shine upon us. Amidst all this darkness, did the cardinal see less clearly? Did he lose his head during all this tempest? Did he not still hold the helm in one hand and the compass in the other? Did he throw himself into the boat to save his life? Nay, if the great ship he commanded were to be lost, did he not show that he was ready to die before all the rest? Was it luck that drew him out of this labyrinth, or was it his own prudence, steadiness, and magnanimity? Our enemies are fifteen leagues from Paris, and his are inside it. Every day come advices that they are intriguing there to ruin him. France and Spain, so to speak, have conspired against him alone. What countenance was kept amidst all this by the man who they said would be dumbfounded at the least ill success, and who had caused Le Havre to be fortified in order to throw himself into it at the first misfortune? He did not make a single step backward all the same. He thought of the perils of the state, and not of his own. And the only change observed in him all through was that, whereas he had not been wont to go out but with an escort of two hundred guards, he walked about every day, attended by merely five or six gentlemen. It must be owned that adversity born with so good a grace and such force of character is worth more than a great deal of prosperity and victory. To me, he did not seem so great and so victorious on the day he entered La Rochelle as then, and the journeys he made from his house to the arsenal seemed to be more glorious for him than those which he made beyond the mountains, and from which he returned with the triumphs of Pignerol and Souza. End of section 32.